Before we can speak of gospel depths, we have to have some idea, in fact, a fairly good idea of what the gospel is. And a magnificent light shines on what the gospel is if we know why he created the universe. And before we can know why he created the universe, we have to know who he is. So let's begin at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or, as John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Which means that the Son of God is the Word and is with God and is God and was not made. He's not a creation because it says, without him was not anything made that was made. If a being was made, he made it. So he was not made. The Son of God was not made. He was God and with God from all eternity. So there was this reality from all eternity, never coming into being, a father and a son existing in mutual love and pleasure in each other. Matthew 3.17, this is my loved son with whom I am well pleased, in whom I take infinite pleasure. Or John 14.31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And that doesn't mean meet the Father's needs. It means I adore him. I treasure him. I enjoy him. I admire him. He is my highest treasure and pleasure. It was a happy fellowship for all eternity. And then along with the Father and the Son in perfect love and delight, the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, a third eternal uncreated person. John 14, 26. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is another counselor, a counselor, a teacher in his own right, another one besides 
the Son, a person sent from the Father and sent from the Son. John 14, 26, Luke 24, 49. And as the Son is co-eternal with the Father, so the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son is co-eternal with them. That is what it means to be the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Son, which are the same according to Romans 8 9. And therefore, before there was any creation, before there was any universe, there was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinite in love, infinite in happiness, in the fellowship of the Trinity, existing absolutely forever, never having come into being, the triune God simply was, is, and always will be, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Absolute, ever-existing, independent God. But not only ever-existing, independent, but also happy. Twice the Apostle Paul calls him the happy God. The word blessed can be eulogitos, it can be makarios. Makarios is used 50 times in the New Testament. All but these two to describe the happy condition of the saints. Like, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's a happy man. A makarios man. And that's the word in 1 Timothy 1.11. The glory of the makarios God. Happy God. 1 Timothy 6.15. The happy and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, ultimate, eternal reality, absolute reality, God is and always has been complete and perfect and without any defect or deficiency or sense of inadequacy. He is infinite in greatness. He's infinite in beauty. And he is infinite in Value. He's greater than the universe. The way a man who wears a ring that he made is greater than the ring. He is more beautiful than all the beauty of the universe. The way Victoria Falls is more beautiful than a magnificent painting of the falls. He is more valuable than the universe, the way a wife is more valuable than her cooking. It is good to be still and think about this. Be still and know that I am God. And the universe, by comparison with God's greatness and beauty and value, is insignificant. 
and I say it carefully, I expect you to hear it carefully. By comparison to the greatness and the beauty and the worth of God, the universe and everything in it is insignificant. And if you need a Bible verse, Isaiah 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Until this sinks in, that the universe and every created thing in it is like dust on one side of the scales, while God is like Mount Everest on the other side of the scales, virtually everything in the Bible will be distorted. We won't see it in its proper proportions and relations. Then, in a way, we cannot conceive this infinitely happy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created the universe. Out of nothing, Romans 4.17, he calls into existence things that do not exist. Why did he do that? He did not need the universe in order to make up some deficiency. He was not coerced by anything outside himself. There was no outside himself. Nothingness had no being. There was only God. The answer that he gives to the question is that he made the universe, including humans as the apex of his creation, for his glory. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's their job. And they do it by design. His. Romans 1.20 His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And that's what they're for. Not just the material world, however, but also you and all the other billions of people that live and have ever lived. Isaiah 43, 7, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. What does that mean? for my glory. To improve my glory? To increase my glory? I don't think so. I think it means three things. God 
created the world and you and everybody for his glory means, one, that his glory be known as the greatest treasure in the universe. Two, that his glory be enjoyed as the greatest pleasure in the universe. And three, that his glory be shown as the greatest treasure and the greatest pleasure by that knowing and that enjoying. I think that's what for my glory means. And apart from all the exegetical foundations that we could bring to argue for that, let me just ask you three rhetorical questions. Is it conceivable that for his glory could mean that he created the world for his glory not to be known or to be known as something less valuable and beautiful than it is. Inconceivable. Or is it conceivable that for his glory would mean that he created the world so that people would find his glory boring Distasteful, something less than all satisfying. And third, is it conceivable that for his glory would mean that all of our knowing of him as our treasure and all of our enjoying him as our pleasure would be hidden from everybody else? Just do that little private thing in your created soul. Inconceivable. Therefore, the universe exists to communicate the glory of God for man to know and enjoy and show as the supreme treasure and the supreme pleasure of our lives. And to that end, God ordained a central drama in the universe and brought it to pass. And the central drama of the universe is not the birth and death of galaxies. They are as nothing compared to this drama. The central drama is not the fusion and fission of atoms. The central drama in the universe is the history of humanity. And this central drama in the theater of creation is the main way that God fulfills his purpose that things, all things, will bring him glory. And the main plot of the drama is that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. And all human beings have become sinners. And sin is what? It is a falling short of the glory of God. Which Paul explains from 323 and 123, it is the exchanging of the glory of God for other treasures and other pleasures. That is the essence 
of sin. Therefore, sin is high rebellion against the purpose of the universe, which it is, and worthy of infinite condemnation and punishment as treason against the Creator. Therefore, the double issue for the universe in this drama is a huge double problem, double crisis. Namely, what will become of man since all of them are rebels and guilty? And what will become of the glory of God? Those are the two main issues in the universe. God does not watch and wonder what will become of his creatures and his glory. When the fullness of time had come, he kept a promise. Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So the good news, it seems, is your God reigns. He's not watching, wondering. So how's it going to turn out? What a mess. He reigns. Why is that good news? His created humanity to the man is rebellious, in treason, and locked up in a prison of blindness. Guilty rebels do not regard the reign of their sovereign as good news, thank you very much. This is not good news. It's the worst news you can imagine. That my king, against whom I have lived all my life in rebellion, reigns. It does not get any better when he shows up. That's bad news. Or is it? Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't just reign. He's arrived. King is here. It's called good news. Like, whoa, it is not good news. How could that be good news? I'm in rebellion. I can't change myself any more than a leopard can change his spots. I'm totally guilty, and all just and holy God reigns and just showed up at my front door. This is not good news. And it's called good news. What makes it gospel? The angel tells us, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news 
of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Oh, yes, it is the city of the king, and he has come, and he reigns. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's only, there's only one word that decisively makes that good news. He's the Savior. So the king has come, all right. Son of David, Christ, Messiah, Son of the Most High, sit on the throne of his father, David, kingdom that reigns forever, no end. You got no chance against this God. And he is being sung by the angels as a savior. So king is coming first not as a judge, but as a, a savior, not as an executioner, but as a savior. That's good news. That's gospel. How will he be a savior? I don't, I don't, how am I going to be saved by this? I don't get this because I'm in big trouble with him, really big trouble. Jesus answers, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 15. Paul echoes, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then again in Romans 4, 25, he's delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And then again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath. That was precious to me. On the afternoon when the doctor said he wanted to do a biopsy on me 10 years ago, that's what he gave me. You're not destined for wrath, no matter what happens in there. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, we might live with him. Whether we wake or sleep, that's good news. Or, Romans 5, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Peter adds his witness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we're healed. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, which takes your breath away that he wrote it this way 700 years before it happened. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that gave us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We're all like sheep gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, yes, he reigns. Yes, the king and the kingdom have come 
But no, that is not good news. And I get, frankly, very tired of people building their theologies around that as good news. It's not. Not without blood and his in particular. Not without substitution. There is no good news in the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to be slaughtered by this deathless king. No good news in his reign. No good news in his coming. Not until he becomes a bloody savior do I feel any hope at all before the reign of God Almighty. Be careful that you don't buy into these naive celebrations of what is gospel. Think, brothers, think. The glory of the king is going to be upheld and wonder of wonders, rebels are going to be pardoned, even adopted into the king's family because the king became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, and in his flesh, our sin is condemned. Romans 8.3, and now, for all of us who are in Christ, the wrath of God is spent. And justice is satisfied. And what makes that good news is that when he died, he bought for his own faith in Jesus Christ. Resurrection from spiritual death. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sins, justification, or the imputation of his own righteousness, peace with God, escape from hell, and the enjoyment of all the new covenant promises, the best and highest of which is, I will be your God, and I will be with you, and you will be my people. Christ suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, in whose presence is fullness of joy, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if you don't end up there, you don't have gospel. God is the gospel in the end enjoyed, treasured, known, shown. In fact, when you try to list all the good things that Jesus obtained for us by shedding his blood and rising again, when you try to list all of those, you realize this includes everything that serves our eternal good. Do you remember the gospel logic of Romans 8.32, probably my favorite verse in the Bible? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Rhetorical question, answer assumed. How will he not with him freely give us, say the words, all things? What? What does that mean? 
By virtue of dying for us, he secures for us all things. My answer is, everything that serves our eternal good. So, if you are given singleness instead of marriage as your life, it's because the blood of Jesus secured the eternal good that singleness will do for you. Or, if you're given a disability which is never healed in this life or a disease, it is because the blood of Jesus secured the eternal good that this disability will do for you. Which means that there are thousands and thousands of good things that Christ did not purchase for you in this life. There is no promise in the cross, in the blood of the gospel. There is no promise in the gospel that in this world Christians will have health. There's no promise in the gospel. He did not purchase for all Christians a job, a marriage, wealth, a home, success in business. If these things come to a Christian, they are shown to be gospel blessings, blood-bought blessings, when they become occasions for knowing and enjoying and showing the glory of God. That is, when they work for our eternal good. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will most certainly give us all things with him in this life, all things that serve our eternal good, including affliction and loss and sorrows. And in the resurrection, everything good, no affliction, no loss, no sorrow, every spiritual and physical blessing in the heavenly places. Now, you might think that the infinite value of the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, would be enough to give us a solid, unshakable hope that these gospel promises will hold for us. And we'll be safe forever. But in fact, those blood-bought promises only hold for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the confidence that we have in the gospel for eternity is based on the fact that the truth of the events is real, he really died. He really rose again. They have that meaning for those who are in Christ. And secondly, we need to know we're in. 
All the blessings that he bought are in Christ, nowhere else. Are you in? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's where they are. And we only have them if we're there in Christ. And this is where I move now finally to gospel depths. I could, of course, say the mark of union with Christ is faith in Christ. So if you want to be in Christ, trust him. Trust him. That would be right. That would be true. Could say that. But God has chosen in his word to take us deeper. Deeper. In fact, he takes us back into the depths of eternity. And he shows us that the depths of eternity are the gospel depths. Not only that the central event of the gospel, the death of Jesus, was accomplished in the mind of God before he created the universe, but also that he chose the beneficiaries of the gospel before the creation of the universe. As he's, that is, he chose who would be in Christ before he created the world. So this is what I mean by gospel depths. Christ crucified in the mind of God before the universe existed. And who will be in him chosen before the universe existed? Consider a few passages. We're not being taught this in the Bible, presumably because God was wasting his breath. Consider your calling, brothers. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. You might want to look at it. We'll be here just a couple of minutes, but time enough perhaps to look at it. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, not by worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him are you in Christ Jesus. Literally, from Him are you in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. No boasting in man, all boasting in the Lord, because he chose us to be in Christ. 
I mean, as you're reading verses 26 to 29 of 1 Corinthians 1, he chose, he chose, he chose. We want to ask, chose for what? Chose for what? And then in verse 30, he answers. He chose, he chose, he chose. From him are you in Christ Jesus. That's what he chose you for. He chose to put you in Christ. This is no contradiction to what I said earlier, right? That we are united to Christ through faith. Why did you believe? Why? I mean, causal why, not purpose why. How came it about that you believe? Here's Spurgeon's famous answer. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me. He, he's a believer, by the way. This is not pretty Christian. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Indeed. And when God chose to put Spurgeon and you in Christ Jesus, when was that? Ephesians says, chapter 1, verse 4, He chose us in Him, in relation to Him, in union with Him, before the foundation of the world. He saw us united to Christ before the foundation of the world. Here's the way the Apostle John in, in the Revelation describes God's choosing to put you in Christ before the creation of the world. This is Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone 
whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So before creation, there was a book in heaven, in God's presence, so to speak. It's called the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. That's the name of the book. In other words, it's a book of those, a list of those who will have life because of the Lamb who was slain. They're in connection with Him. To be in the book is to be in Christ, to be the beneficiary of His death. And God wrote these names before the creation of the universe in that book. He did not write them in that book because he foresaw their faith. On the contrary, they believe because he wrote them in the book. That's what it says. He does not say their names are in the book because they didn't worship the beast. It says they don't worship the beast because their names are in the book. Being in the book has made you a kind of person who doesn't become an unbelieving worshiper of the beast. Here's the way Luke puts it in Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Not the other way around. It doesn't say because he foresaw that they would believe, he appointed them to eternal life. It's just the opposite. Because they were appointed to eternal life, they believed. John puts it like this, quoting Jesus. John 10, 26. You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Not the other way around. It's not because you do not believe, therefore you're not part of my sheep. He doesn't say that. He says, because you're not part of my sheep, that's why you don't believe. So, John says, being in the book of the life of the lamb that was slain, being in the book, keeps you from worshiping the beast. Luke says, being ordained to eternal life brings you to believe. Jesus says, being part of my sheep is why you believe. In other words, God's choosing who will be rescued from rebellion and wrath in Christ is not based on foreseen faith. If you have faith in this room or watching this Video. If you have faith today in Christ and are thus united to Christ, it is because God chose you for this before the foundation of the world. That is not, in my judgment, an ambiguous teaching in the Bible. So what I mean by gospel depths 
is that both the central event of the gospel, death and resurrection of Jesus, and your union with that risen Christ was accomplished in the mind of God before he created the world. So let me close like this. Four brief lessons, reasons, why God has revealed this to us. Why would he, why would he say this? Just leave it out. Why did he teach us this? Four reasons. One, God intends for the gospel depths of his choosing to deepen your humility by rooting it in God's eternity. I get that from 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 31, which goes like this. God chose things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that this is his purpose. He did it for this reason. He's telling us he did it for this reason. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. If God's free, gracious, unconditional choice of you to be in Christ before the foundation of the world does not break the back of your self-exaltation and self-reliance and self-serving and instead waken a glad eagerness to boast only in the Lord, this truth has not made its way into your heart but is stuck in the argument factory of your head. That's not a good place for this to be. This is heart teaching to break our and bring us down as low as we can go before the living God and raise us up with spectacular joy and love. Number two, God intends for these gospel depths to deepen your zeal for holiness. And oh, is that needed today? Ephesians 1, 4 he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. I think love between people is, in Paul's mind, the, the heart of holiness. So if the word holiness has no good connotations for you because stuffy and religious just translate radical self-sacrificing love. I think I could show that exegetically. But notice, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. God has never lost sight of his purpose of creating the universe, right? He created the universe so that the world would be filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. That happens because the gospel produces humble, holy people. 
And if it doesn't look like it does, it may be that gospel depths are not known by 90% of the Christians in America. And I would think that's an understatement. Maybe. Since that's why they're taught. Number three. God intends for these gospel depths to be, to deepen the confidence in and our commitment to finishing the Great Commission. Zane Pratt tomorrow, can I hammer that one? I'm going to say something else about it tomorrow night. These gospel depths are revealed in the Bible to deepen our confidence in and our commitment to finishing the Great Commission. Now remember, Jesus said that people believe because they are part of his flock. That's why they believe. The reason you do not believe is because you're not part of my flock. He also said this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must. Oh, that's big from the king of the universe. I must bring them also. And they will. So there are two words underlined in your theology of mission. Must, will. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. I don't fail in my mission. Paul took heart from that teaching, did he not? In Corinth, scared, dangerous, which is the only way the mission is going to get done today. Jesus comes to him in a dream at night to tell him to press on, to quit, keep declaring the gospel. Why? Acts 18.10, for I have many people in this city. They're mine. I bought them. I chose them. Go speak. My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. So speak for me. Isn't that amazing that Jesus gives that to you? Open your mouth. Sound my name and my gospel. Let my voice be heard in yours. My sheep hear my voice and they follow. You cannot fail. Get it done in the hardest places of the world. It's not your job to convert anybody. Let the voice be heard. You'll get it done. Finally, number four, God intends for these gospel depths to deepen and sweeten your experience of being loved by God with a personal love that has no beginning and no ending. So many Christians experience the love of God only as a love that offers and waits. 
offers eternal life through the blood of Jesus, it waits to see what your self-determining will will make of it. And this is celebrated as the love of God far and wide. It's tragic that that is all millions and millions of Christians know of the love of God consciously. God himself has given us a window on gospel depths of his love that are vastly more than that. And he has done this so that we will exult in the wonders of being loved personally, individually, from before eternity, not because we believed, not because we performed, but because God delighted to choose us. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 10, 14. He just delights to be free. He chose us because he chose us in love. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord because God chose you. John 13.1 When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Ephesians 2.4 where it where it came to me most powerfully years ago. God, being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love. Now, Paul doesn't use that phrase anywhere else. Great love. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. Do you see what that means? That means that there is a love that does not respond to your response to him. He's not waiting. You were dead. And out of the great love from eternity which he has for you, he made you alive so that you could believe, so that you could see his beauty, so that you could treasure him as his highest treasure and enjoy him as the greatest pleasure. That's, that's a different personalness, depth, of love that many Christians never enjoy, which is very sad and cannot but have effects on our worldliness and our weakness. Oh, brothers, I conclude. 
If you're alive tonight, that is, if you know God in Christ as your greatest treasure, if you're alive tonight, that is, if, if you enjoy God in Christ as your greatest pleasure, if you're alive tonight, that is, if you show God in Christ to the world as your greatest treasure and your greatest pleasure, it's because you were loved and chosen before the foundation of the world. So, be humble, be holy, be courageous in mission and in love for the glory of God. Father, come, come. Oh, take these truths from your word and make them understandable as much as humans can and loved and treasured and cherished and enjoyed so that we become the kind of humble, holy, mission-driven people that cannot be stopped by anything. I ask this in Jesus' name.